0: Unique Ways with Thomas Gerard emerges with people from all walks of life who, through their own unique angle, succeed and flourish. Enjoy the ride and welcome to Unique Ways, an audio podcast. Hey, hey, everyone, welcome to Unique Ways with Thomas Gerard, an audio podcast. Um, today's guest, in many ways, needs no introduction, but I will introduce him briefly. He's the past president and vice chancellor of Emily Carr University of Art and Design. In 2013, he received the Order of Canada distinction, and in 2015, he received the Order of British Columbia. He also has a French distinction, which I don't know how to pronounce, but from what I understand means the Order of France, and that was in 2010. Please join me in celebrating and welcoming Ron Burnett. Welcome, Ron.
1: Hi, Thomas. Nice nice to be here. Um, so, just a bit more information on myself. I've published uh, quite a number of books. Uh, one book, uh, which the title of which is Explorations in Film Theory, is a compilation of uh, essays from a journal I founded and edited in the 1970s and 80s, uh, the title of which is Cine Tracks" was Cine Tracks." And uh, Cinetrax was one of the first journals in cultural and film studies in, uh, in Canadian history, actually. Uh, there were only a couple of other examples uh, in the uh, 50s and 60s. Uh, and it was a very important journal. And uh, it was published in, by Indiana University Press in the United States. The book itself, the journal that we publish here in uh, Canada. And then I have another book, Cultures of Vision, Uh, which is about uh, the advent of the digital age and the context of uh, the study of linguistics and language and how images actually communicate. And the third book is How Images Think, which is very, very much an extension of the second one, which examines uh, the role of images in contemporary uh, society. Uh, And uh, I spent 22 years as president of Emily Carr, and I'm uh, still working at Emily Carr at the moment as a a, a director of a center and doing a lot of, I'm writing two books uh, right now and uh, finished one and two thirds of the way through the other. Um, So my work uh, in this field of uh, film, film language, uh, new digital technologies, teaching, learning has not stopped.
0: Great. Um, We've got 20 questions. Can I go into them uh, one by Mm -hmm. one here? Okay, number one is tell me a little bit more about yourself. What do you do? You kind of uh, just filled us in on that, but if you want to go at it again.
1: Uh, no, that's, uh, that's about it. I, uh, I, I'm involved in a number of different projects. I'm directing a center at Emily Carr, uh, the title of which is the Center for Transdisciplinary Studies, which is one of the most important things uh, that I have been doing over the last uh, number of decades. Uh, something similar to what I did when I was uh, a professor at McGill University. Um, but beyond what I just said, no, that's a fair bit.
0: i um I have how images think. that's a that's a great book. I, I really cherish that one. Um, number two, what's a key piece of knowledge that makes you different? Well,
1: I, I think uh, the the fact that I'm actually an immigrant uh, to Canada, and uh, came from a family that was uh, profoundly affected by the Second World War and the Holocaust uh, and had to, as a consequence of being a migrant, uh, really adjust very profoundly to the shift to Canadian culture and uh, particularly because I, I was, I grew up in Montreal and uh, learned French and uh, speak it very well. Um, so the... the uh, it it, change, it changes you when you're uh, an immigrant to a, a country, it makes you very different as a person and alters your perspective on history on your own work and how you live and what you do and what you can contribute and what you should contribute. <clears throat> it's a profoundly different experience from someone that was born into a community. And develops relationships with people through that experience. Uh, I have always been to some extent an outsider uh, because of it and uh, some of that has been good, some of it's been challenging, um, but I've always had to learn a lot more than many of the people who are not immigrants about actually where I live and, and why I'm living in the places that I've, uh, I have lived. So that's a rather different I mean, there are a lot of people that are immigrants, but it's a rather different characteristic of of my background.
0: You know, you've kind of succeeded in in every metric. I think as we go through the questions, um that'll that'll kind of become even more evident. Um number three, why this of all things? why do you do what you do? You know that's a very good question.
1: I write. Uh, uh, I write a lot. Uh, I, I'm, I I've been doing that. well, English wasn't my maternal language. Uh, and so, I had to learn English and I had to learn French. Uh, and I think because of that learning, I developed a deeper sense, uh, a much more profound sense of the importance of language, not only in everyday life uh, and the way we talk and the way we talk to each other, but in uh, in the actual ways in which we think to ourselves about ourselves and about what we're doing and why. And so uh, the... the Language is so important to me that I feel almost impelled on a daily basis to write something. So I write. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, I would say that in my archives there are not tens of thousands, but hundreds of thousands of pages of material that I have written, of which I select a very small <laughs> amount mm-hmm. when I'm working towards the publication of a book or an article. Um, but I, uh, I think that the uh, that is a very much a product of my background but it's also uh, a product of uh, another aspect of who i am which is i'm a, a communicator i i'm interested in the people i speak to and i'm interested in hearing what they have to think about what not only what i say but for themselves what they feel um and so that brings me into the linguistic space constantly i'm also very uh i shot you know hundreds of experimental films and uh uh, been working with experimental films since I was a teenager. Um, so I actually have that language uh, down very, very uh, pat and I understand it and uh, I still have the ambition to make a film in the next uh, decade or so, which I hope I'll be able to do. Um, and the third thing is that, uh, I, uh, love teaching. I taught, at uh, uh, universities, uh, in Australia and Canada, uh, and, uh, teaching is, uh, one of the great professions, totally underestimated, totally misunderstood, totally abused, especially by people who have the power to abuse it. Um, and, uh, I, uh, uh, I'm a, the strongest imaginable supporter of, Of what teachers do, how hard they work, how hard they have to work, and how much they give to our community and to the people they they teach.
0: That's great, a lot of topics to talk about there. Um, You know, book writing will be something that will connect with a lot of our audience. I think Mm -hmm. at the end you've got to tell us uh, the best place to get your books. Um, Number four, what does your future look like? Well, uh, uh, at the
1: moment, uh, given the uh, kind of work that I'm doing and the amount of time I'm spending on these books, uh, uh, I'm trying, the, the first book I've completed in this uh, particular phase of my life is a novel, and it's a story, it's the title of which is The Lost Painter. Uh, it's a story of a, of a painter who has to uh, leave Vienna in the 1930s. Uh, his experiences uh, as, uh, uh, in, a, in, a, in effect, a sort of lost soul, what happens to his career in the 50s and 60s and how that intersects with the politics and culture of the time. Um, and so the novel was a really uh, very personal effort on my part to both write fiction and write for a completely different audience than the audience that uh, normally uh, reads reads my work. Um, so that part of it is it is, it's a very, very, I mean, novels are, very different from academic writing i mean it's it's a very very tough tough uh uh type of work because um you have to you have to really think carefully about who the reader is and what the reader is feeling and th- and thinking about when they're reading so you're involved in a a, a dialogue with this imaginary reader and you, you there are many authors who say well, I just write for myself, but I think ultimately what they're saying is that they write for themselves to some extent, but they're always conscious of the fact that they're writing for someone else as well. And, uh, and that uh, changes the nature of the language you use in academic writing, you can get away with more obscurity than you could ever in a novel. Uh, and uh, I try and my second book, which is the title of which is a biography of learning, I try there to to bring the language right into the public space. I want the book, uh, which which I think will be published by MIT, uh, I want the book to be one that is read across uh, different groups of people from teachers to students uh, to researchers to policy people as well. And I'm hoping that it it articulates an argument about the importance of learning uh, in in such a way that it actually will motivate some thinking about policy, because the policy surrounding learning and education, both in Canada and the United States and in Europe, uh, the the, the government approach to learning and education is very, very impoverished and highly unintellectual. In fact, it's anti-intellectual. So in that in that, respects, in that respect, uh, the, the future looks rather interesting. We'll see where it takes me.
0: It's a great answer. Um, we had Dr. Garnett Hertz on a previous episode, mm-hmm. who also has a book coming out through MIT Press. Um, maybe we can encourage people to get both of those. Mm-hmm. Um, number five, and this one's a bit unique to this podcast, it's Let's Talk About Location. How does the notion of place play into what you do?
1: Very significantly. Um, so, you know, coming out of an immigrant family, uh, living in Montreal, was the first indication uh, of the importance of place. Because when you live in Montreal, uh, as, as a, particularly as a teenager, and uh, you, you live in a very deeply culturally divided, but culturally fascinating environment, and so you have to you have to understand not only the, the geography but the mental ge- mental geography of the place you're in. I would say the same applies to living in Vancouver, although it's a, of a of a different type of quality uh, than it was in Montreal. And uh, we we lived in Australia for a number of years, where I also taught at university in Melbourne, and uh, that that became a a real highlight of. But well, it became a way of thinking about space and time in and in in geography in a way that I'd never actually thought about, because in Australia, Australia is unique, uh, I, I managed because of my job to travel basically to every part of it. And uh, it's not only the extraordinary landscape, which is one of the most extraordinary in the world, but it's also the indigenous people and and how they've translated their knowledge into something that uh, for a long time I couldn't understand and finally After uh, some lengthy work on my part, I met one of the most extraordinary artists in in the history of Aboriginal and Indigenous art in Australia, who actually got an OBE from the Queen. And uh, from him, I learned uh, very specific things about the nature of location, of what it means to be in a particular space and time in part of a geography that you otherwise would never experience unless you were in in the centre of it. So uh, the notion of place is fundamental to everything I do. Uh, the, the, the campus that uh, uh, I, I built for Emily Carr, the, the new campus, uh, is in fact uh, entirely defined by an, a geographical notion of recentering the city of Vancouver away from its conventional points of contact and opening up areas uh, of the city to the east of Maine that have been treated abysmally by by policymakers at the city level, but equally by uh, provincial governments. Uh, The east side uh, uh, of the city has has few parks, few green spaces, few interesting architectural uh, uh, designs, very few public environments for people. In fact, the original design of the campus, which we can talk about a bit later on, the original design of the campus had many more public uh, squares and then, and then ended up because of costs and finances. So a place is extremely important I mean, location, very important.
0: That's great. You know, I'm thinking back to this one Christmas, it would have been the first Christmas that that campus was up and accessible. And I woke up that Christmas and asked myself how I want to spend it and uh, ended up wandering around the campus. No one was there. And it was mm-hmm. uh, such a magical time. <clears throat> Um, yep. Number six. If you had to start from scratch, what advice would you give your former younger self?
1: Ah, that's a very good question. Well, there's no one answer I can give to that. But if I if I actually were to focus um, on on trying to answer it uh, in a substantive way, I'd have to say uh, that I that I probably would want to have spent more time. Uh, developing the relationship that I have with writing (laughs) and with creativity uh, and give myself, I I didn't give myself enough time to do some of the projects I really wanted to do. So that, um, if I were to talk to my former self, I would say, don't waste your time on this and this uh, uh, project. Uh, Get uh, get that core of uh, writing that you want to get done, get it done now do it now. Like, for example, in terms of fiction, I've always written fiction since I was a, a kid. And uh, I, I just let it lie fallow. especially when I came down my car and uh, and the institution required so much rejigging and redevelopment and rethinking as an educational institution uh, that I, I, I put that to the side. So I would tell my former self, <laughs> start from scratch and Right away, get into 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 what I do love, which is fiction.
0: That's really inspiring for me. Um, you know, I'm really excited to read some of your fiction. Um, mm-hmm. I like to write creative nonfiction, but sometimes I mess up the details, and I think it becomes mm-hmm. fiction. Um, what's a day in your life like? Generally, it's
1: uh, uh, I'm very lucky. I, I've been married to the same woman for over fifty years, and. We are still as in love with each other as we were when we first met. Um, so generally, my days uh, are uh, devoted. Uh, well, when I worked as the president of the car, uh, you know, a, a day, a day in my life was filled with uh, meetings and lunches and dinners, and it was very, very, very tough, I, I would say. I average somewhere between 60 and 80 hours a week uh, on, a, on a good week. Uh, it was extremely demanding uh, and for a very long time. Uh, and it drained the energy out of me. It's taken me quite a number of years after I finished uh, the job to recover from the impact on, on my, my health. Um, but my, generally, I would say that notwithstanding all that, I basically do a lot of research uh, every day of, and have done every day of my life. Uh, I do a, a fair bit of, uh, when I can, uh, community work and uh, helping out uh, in, in areas that uh, are in need. Um, I'm uh, very devoted to uh, progressive, uh, a progressive vision of social change, uh, and I spend time talking to people about that. Uh, So I would say it's very heterogeneous. It's not homogeneous. It's always very challenging. It's always very different. And since I left the presidency, it's been uh, fascinating to just watch uh, what's going on in education and the arts. And that's why I'm writing this book, actually, because it's my attempt to talk through some of the, the incredible potential and also some of the incredible challenges of what it means to be a creative person in the 21st century.
0: I think that's a good answer and an important answer because um, your days are spent creating new work. And not everybody Mm -hmm. knows that um, we should be anticipating this work from you um, that's going to be, you know, as rich as you say it is. Mm -hmm. Um, Number eight, lifelong learning is a popular topic. Mm -hmm. How do you stay up to date?
1: Uh, Constantly. uh, I'm probably the most... um advanced user of computer technology that you will meet aside from the actual technicians that build it. Because I began working with internet-based technologies in 1977, if you can imagine. Mm -hmm. Uh, And by 1983 or 84, I had my my own computer at home, one of the first Apple computers. I was producing uh, uh, material uh, that nobody was producing. I actually published an article in 84, with a Quebec magazine where I I, uh, took a portrait of one of my daughters and uh, converted it into uh, a dot matrix uh, printer and then rechanneled it through uh, what was then a very nascent uh, painting program and created a portrait of her that uh, was unique. No one had actually done that. So I'm a techno crazy man. Uh, I have three or four computers, I, uh, I, I've hooked up my house, it's like a electronic utopia. So I, I actually um, uh, continuously learn uh, and stay up to date with uh, new technologies. I'm fascinated by, you know, even about, I mean, I'm very, I, I did some science work when I was in university, and I'm fascinated with fusion technologies, with uh, astronomy, with uh, biology, with uh, viral Issues around viruses, especially given what happened with COVID, and uh, and I stay up to date with all these things. So I'm continuously on a research bent, but in, from a practical point of view, uh, I'm kind of building funny things with technologies as well. I love doing that. So I have uh, uh, way too many cameras that I've accumulated over the years, uh, in- including I still have. I used to shoot uh, videotape uh, with the early videotape before it was actually. It was, I mean the machine was called the Porter pack and uh, it came out in the late 60s. And I still actually have a Porter pack from that period when I was very young because I shot a tremendous number of videotapes at that in that period. and I still continue to shoot now with more obviously more sophisticated technologies. But I still actually have that Porter pack, which I'm going to donate to the National Archives so they can actually uh, show it to people in you know people who've never seen that kind of machinery before.
0: Very cool. Um, just about halfway here, number nine. What tools do you use? Are you more digital or are you more analog?
1: I'm totally digital. Uh, I, I'm analog in the sense that I uh, I do use pen and paper to correct what I print out, but I'm uh, you know probably too digital. Uh, actually, <laughs> I don't know what it means anymore where the boundaries are between the digital and the analog, but because uh, they're they're definitely sliding between each other, compressed together. Um, But uh, uh, I'm—I have never been anything other than fascinated by digital technologies. Uh, I can remember the uh, uh, the very first uh, web pages I put up in 19 between 1992 and 1994. Uh, I there was a meeting in Ottawa of the deans of art, uh, but these are not sort of art and design, but the sort of the arts faculties across the uh, like the Faculty of Arts at McGill or Faculty of Arts at UBC. These were the deans meeting in Toronto, and one of their afternoon workshops uh, was, what do we do with Burnett's website? Because it was one of the first academic websites in the country. And and all I had done was uh, I taught myself HTML, and I uh, put up images and links to articles and stuff I'd written and stuff other people had written. And uh, they saw it as a potential threat to the... <laughs> To what universities were accustomed to doing, of course, that changed with time. Um, but it was a very uh, interesting example of of that kind of uh, fascination I have uh, with the with the with the digital technology. So I'm not a digital nomad; I'm a digi- digitized human.
0: That's awesome. I started with the internet when I was 15, and uh, that was probably pretty late. <laughs> um, <laughs> Some people argue about the relevance of this question, but number ten is how do you deal with work-life balance? Um, I think uh,
1: every uh, I think in all our lives, every day is simply uh, a continuum. If you create too many distinctions between what you do and where you do it, you don't recognize that they're intermingling with each other, your attitudes, your viewpoints, your relationships, your friendships. Um, So, for me, it's a continuum uh, between what I do and think about and how I work and what I work at. Uh, I don't see them as in conflict with each other. I think uh, uh, it's a kind of harmonious, uh, the, the metaphor or the analogy that comes to mind is it's like playing really, really well on the piano when you get all the right notes in the right place. And the music just comes out quite naturally so i i don't i don't think one has to create an opposition there i think that the the two are intertwined
0: great i love it number 11 if you weren't doing what you do now what would you be doing
1: i'd be doing what i'm doing now (laughs) (laughs) i don't think i don't think i well you know what uh, i mean one of my uh, the greatest uh, desires and urges was actually uh, to study astronomy and uh, physics. And I did do that for the first uh, few years in the undergraduate uh, as an undergraduate at McGill. So if I were to, if I, if I weren't doing what I'm doing now, I'd probably be a physicist.
0: Very cool. Number 12 is what do you not like to do in terms of career, for example? Uh,
1: I don't like to. Uh, engage in meetings and with people who have not thought carefully about who they are and why they're saying what they're saying. I think uh, I've attended hundreds of meetings where the disingenuousness of the participants, not all, but many, has always alarmed me because I, I feel that one of the most important things one has to do in life is be as honest as possible, as fair as possible, as compromising as possible, um, but never uh, to assume that that you yourself know exactly why you're saying what you're saying, or even fully understand exactly what you're saying. I mean, the analogy that comes to mind there is when I uh, when I when I teach, I usually start off the very first class and say, and I'm quite honest about it. I say I actually don't know exactly what we should be doing together, because if if I if I already know what we're going to be doing together, um, then you won't discover what you might want to do with me. Uh, And learning to me is a discovery uh, process where you continuously reinitialize yourself in in computer terms to discover new things. Um, So uh, I don't like a context where that free-flowing ability to discover new things together is hindered by a lack of honesty or a lack or more or in some cases some people come to meetings with a very strategic intent and you know that intent overwhelms their capacity to read the room and and understand the communication process
0: that reminds me of our last episode with Yasmin who's a third year industrial design student at Emily Carr and she requested that we run the episode more conversationally um, and we removed the numbers from the questions and kind of had a lot of long conversation. It was nice.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Um, but number 13, <laughs> your favorite word, quote, or sentence.
1: So number 13 is what's your favorite word, quote, or
0: sentence? What's yes. What's word, quote, or
1: sentence? You know, that's a very interesting one. I don't actually distinguish. I don't think that way. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I, I love words and sentences so much uh, that I actually don't uh, approach, but I will actually get something here. Mm-hmm. Hang on a sec. Okay. Um, I will actually read you something that comes close to answering that question, but from a very different uh, perspective. Uh, I'm trying. I want to make sure it's not too long. Um, they are playing a game they are playing at not playing a game if i show them i see they are i shall break the rules and they will punish me i must play their game of not seeing i see the game that to me uh says something about language so uh, that's uh, ronald lang a very famous um uh, psychologist and psychoanalyst in the 1970s, uh, a man who uh, had a very profound impact on my thinking. Uh, I'll give you another example of his approach. That is rather—I can't read the whole thing because they're all they're very, very long. But these are—this is the way he deals with um, the complexity of human relationships and human understanding. just looking for it here. Jill thinks Jack is mean and greedy. Jack thinks Jill is mean and greedy. The more Jill feels that Jack is mean, the more greedy Jack feels Jill to be, the more Jill feels Jack is greedy. The more mean Jack feels Jill to be, the more greedy Jack feels Jill to be, the more mean Jill feels Jack to be, and so on and so on. He goes on and on. And uh, so what he's actually dealing with is the extraordinary ambiguity and uh, complexity of language and how little we understand of when we actually use our sentences, when we speak, uh, how little we understand of the contradictions that we're actually producing through that speech.
0: That's really great. You know, two episodes ago, we had Scott Mallory Jr. on the show and he has a great YouTube piece up um, that really speaks to to what you just read there. Um, you know, the kind of, uh, kind of reverberation of, of mm-hmm. ideas Great. Um, fourteen. What's your least favorite word, quote, or sentence? Uh,
1: cliches. Any cliché, you know, the cliches politicians use, the the cliches that circulate on on uh, on TV. Uh, I don't have a specific sentence to quote from, but they're everywhere, and uh, I'm I, especially the uh, the cliches politicians use. I when I was in meetings with uh, uh, different deputy ministers and ministers and so on they they you know they always say things like well emily carr has to be an institution that produces uh, people who are going to go out into the workplace and do productive things and i said well that's a cliche because uh you know it doesn't work that way people learn and discover and as they learn more they discover about what it is they want to do and be it's just not as linear and i'm fond of uh the, the story where I was actually uh, at a meeting of government, and they were hammering away. I was there myself, and they were hammering away at me, saying, "You know, uh, graduates from Emily Carr are, are basically don't contribute anything to the economy." And I said, "That's not true." Uh, and they went on and on. And then I said, uh, "I said stop. I said, how many of you actually knew precisely what you were going to become when you graduated from university?" And in fact, by the way how many of you said when you graduated, I'm going to become a bureaucrat in government? And there was this moment of silence. And I said, so how many? And they said, nothing. None of them had ever thought they would become what they had said they would become, uh, which is a, a bureaucrat in government. they never, they didn't train for that. So I just turned it all around on, back on them. <laughs> so my least favorite word, actually my least favorite phrase is, Get educated so you get a job that fits with what you were educated to do. And, uh, you know, that's cool if you want to do it, but it's not something somebody else should impose on you if you don't want to.
0: In our last episode, Yasmin said something very similar. Your your ideas must be still resonating in that way. Um, number 15, if you had to pick one word to describe yourself, what would, you, what would it be? What would you choose? Mm.
1: Sensuous.
0: that's a surprise Um, right (laughs) it's good good. um 16 what keeps you up at night
1: oh god everything well you know the political situation in north america right now is really keeping me up at night i mean i aside from trump and all that stupidity i'm very concerned about what's happening uh in politically in canada when a, a person who's uh way out of line with his politics. Uh, he's running for the head of the Conservative Party and uh, so I I worry about uh, what does that mean for future generations when politics are so divided when there's no commonality of goal and commonality of vision. Uh, I worry that Canadian society is going to descend into the same chaos and anger and, and potential violence that you find in, in America but I'm equally concerned about the rise of Milton right-wing fascism in Italy, France. Uh, it's uh, scary what's going on across Europe. Uh, so these are tough, tough times combined with climate change and pandemics. Uh, one could uh, one could say that we are living in the middle of some sort of apocalyptic period. Um,
0: final stretch here, 17, what's a dream you're chasing?
1: uh i think at this point it's to see if i can actually get uh the my novel which deals with a lot of the issues we've been discussing but mm-hmm. not directly to see if i can get it published i i want to get it published in england because it's about an english painter mm-hmm. uh and uh i uh, i have haven't it, it is being looked at um by uh, uh people who work in the in the uh, field of publishing uh, novels in england uh, but it's extremely hard. Everybody thinks they can write a novel and, and all power to them. I think everyone should if they want to. Um, but moving from that to publication is a very, very difficult and treacherous task. And I have no idea if it will. So that's very concerning.
0: I'm genuinely interested to ask number 18, which is what inspires you?
1: Well, it's a lot of different things. You know, I, I'm very inspired by. Uh, some of the extraordinary work that I've seen come out of Emily Carr, some of the most amazing projects in design and visual arts and media. But I think I, I think if I were to, you know, kind of raise a flag about uh, I I'm deeply inspired by good writing mm. and uh, by good uh, and thoughtful. Uh, and careful analysis uh, and on the on the fictional side by writing that is heartfelt and Mm -hmm. is exploring the issues that uh, really are important to explore about human behavior and human interaction and social social change and social justice Uh, so um, I'm inspired by a lot of things actually I'm actually uh, I'm fascinated with artificial intelligence uh, and uh, I'm actually working on a project for Emily Carr, where I hope we can bring in some people who are specialized in AI to talk about it. Uh, I was playing around with uh, Dal E, which is the program where you you write out a sentence, uh, you know, create a, create a uh, well, no, you don't have to say create. If you say, I, I want to have a, a dog uh, in the middle of a Rembrandt painting, they'll, the, the artificial intelligence will generate uh, an image, which is not to say it's a good image, but I'm fascinated by the fact that the, the, it's getting more and more intelligent, and I'm worried about that as well, since I don't fully agree with uh, the, the approach taken, which seems to be not aware of the ethical, ethical implications of artificial intelligence, so um, I'm chasing a lot of dreams.
0: That's exciting for me to see the AI results to coming out of Emily Carr. Um, yeah. Number, yeah. Number 19, any advice you'd like to share?
1: From from someone who is, uh, you know, in the, as uh, Dylan Thomas, the poet, said, the winter of their lives, uh, I, I, what I would say is that um, if, you, if you, I, I don't want to sound... Cliché, uh, but if you if you do in fact have uh, a dream, um, uh, well, the first thing is to have some dreams and not to assume that the pragmatic overwhelms the visionary. Uh, and if you do have those dreams, like for example, uh, I I had a dream of creating a completely new type of art school uh, from the ground up. So the building uh, was not only about you know, moving from Grand Valley, which was in a very, very poor shape and actually dangerous to the health of everyone who was in it, um, it wasn't wasn't only about that. It was about can you in the twenty first century envision something that was very prevalent in the nineteen fifties and sixties and seventies, which was an effort to create new types of schooling, new types of experiences? Uh, can that be uh, can be do- can that be done in the twenty first uh, century? And um, you know, that, uh, it means that you have to, from a, a, from a the point of view of your own life, really chase that dream. Uh, and it sounds cliched, but it's true. And if you don't actually give yourself that freedom, you'll never know if you would have actually accomplished more than you uh, had anticipated. And so chase the dream, fail and fail again. But if you do succeed, the, the depth of satisfaction will be greater than anything you've ever experienced
0: wow that's good um and number 20 how can our listeners keep tabs on you and maybe you want to plug your books here well um
1: uh the, 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 the you can keep tabs on me through my website uh, which, which is uh http colon slash slash dot uh, ecuad dot ca Uh, And on that website, uh, which I haven't in the last few months, I haven't had the time to update, but which deep and buried in it, are well over 150 articles freely available for everyone to read and uh, and there's a search mechanism so you can actually search for whatever may be of interest. Um, And the other way to keep up to date uh, with me is uh, to... uh, watch watch uh, Watch what's going to happen with uh, the couple of books that are coming out now. The first one is called The Lost Painter, which is the novel. And the other one is called A Biography of Learning, which is uh, a, a, an effort to talk about the future of learning in the 20th, uh, 21st century. I think those are the two best ways to keep up. I don't do much Twittering. I'm not a fan of the medium and I don't, uh, I play with Facebook, but I, you know, basically if I, if I, if I could, I would take the code and mangle it. And Instagram doesn't interest me too much because I, I love photography and I think you have to spend time contemplating the image rather than simply passing by. I, I, I read a lot of my uh, book on learning about uh, what I call the glance, which is a way of looking at the world around you and at the images that you see uh, that are so, so pro- uh, prolific. Uh, where you actually just glance. And I, I'm i a fan of uh, deeper looking, deeper thinking. So um, uh, the website is probably the best way I'll announce the, the book, uh, the books and have samples of the books uh, on the site once. Uh, and there are samples from the other books uh, on the site as well.
0: I'll just kind of second that and amplify that. Yeah, do get these books that Ron has coming out, um, do check out this website. It is very rich. Um, in all honesty, that's that's my opinion. Um, and um, and just a huge thank you to have someone of your caliber on the show is uh, is very special. Um, and as you know, you know, I've been um, kind of following you from the beginning, so um, mm-hmm. or from my beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's uh, it's it's just such a pleasure to to have you here today. Thank you, Ron.
1: It's a great pleasure and thank you for showing interest. Thanks.
0: If you like today's podcast, I encourage you to have a listen to other episodes. You can easily find them at uniqueways.ca or wherever you find podcasts. You can also find us on social media. And thank you. It's you that makes these great, and it's you who these are for. Stay tuned for more unique ways. Mm-hmm.